Well, one of the nice findings about um, decision-making under pressure is apparently when we're feeling stressed, we have a natural bias to do something about it. Makes sense, doesn't it? That you do something about the stress. But the blind spot is that almost nobody says to themselves, what could I subtract? What could I take away? All we're trying to prevent is that what I'm going to call emergency mode, preventing that from becoming default mode. Because, you know, if everything's an emergency, nothing's an emergency. Imagine you're working with somebody like Serena Williams, somebody really at the top of their game. What you would never do is rock up to Serena and say, oh, I think you need to make these big changes. You know, it'd be ridiculous. But what elite performers do stay open to is this idea that maybe you could make a 1% shift. Maybe there's something that you could do differently with your recovery or your preparation or your technique that's not a dramatic change, but will still accumulate over time and make a difference. I'm Ian Rodwell and welcome to the latest episode of the Linklaters Ideas Foundry where we talk about and try to unpick the art of working together in the 21st century organisation. Now the new year often comes with the promise of a new start. It's a time to reset and formulate good intentions for the months ahead. And who better to help us revisit our habits and routines than my next guest. Dr. Rob Archer is a psychologist specialising in helping organisations and individuals build resilience, improve mental health and sustain high performance. He works with a wide range of clients, from financial and professional services through to the creative industries, as well as both athletes and managers in Premiership football, uh, cricket, tennis and Formula One. So if anyone can get us motivated to stick to the New Year's resolutions, it's Rob. So, Rob, welcome to the Ideas Foundry. Thanks so much, Ian. Great to be here. So, Rob, I've provided a little bit of a flavour, but could you tell us more about your practice and the work that you do? Yeah, of course. So, um, Cognacity, uh, I, I'm a director of Cognacity. We're a team of doctors and psychologists who work across the mental health spectrum. So, one end of the spectrum, we run a clinical practice where we help people who are struggling with stress or mental health challenges. And then at the other end of the spectrum, as you've said, uh, we help really teams and individuals who are working under pressure. So whether that's a, an elite law firm or whether it's an elite sporting team, our role is to try and keep people healthy, but also keep them performing at their best. Uh, and I, I, I suppose what my clients have in common is they're all working under pressure and stress, often relentlessly. Uh, and so I like to talk about or think about what we can learn from other high pressure environments that we can usefully apply to our own lives in a very practical way. I love that idea of the, the sort of the cross pollination between completely different uh, sort of sectors and specialisms. It's exactly, I feel privileged that I'm able to sort of wander in, not knowing anything about where I'm going, you know, the, the, I don't know anything about elite law or, or Formula One, really. But I'm, I'm able to sort of wander in, talk about what I know. And then, as you say, you, you take things with you that you can then use elsewhere. It's just a fascinating aspect of my job. And that cross-pollination, uh, I think, does can work. Absolutely. Now, look, 
Um, we've started to sort of mention sort of pressure and stress. And I guess one thing to, to look at is, is how typically does this pressure, this stress tend to manifest itself? Yeah, really great question. So I think one of the things I like to talk about is the difference between good and bad stress. I think very often in sort of modern society, we're sort of beginning to position stress as bad when it isn't. It evolved for a purpose. Uh, anybody listening to this will know that stress often comes with some of the most meaningful and best experiences in life. So if we start to position stress as the problem, we run into even greater problems. So what I like to talk about is the difference between good stress, which is largely acute stress. This is where you have a challenge or a threat. You know, millions of years ago, you might see a, a lion on the savannah. You turn the stress response on. It's that that's going to help you survive. And these days, you know, working to a deadline, you're often a lot more focused and energized if you have a bit of that stress response. So that's good stress. I think the problem is that many of us and humans in particular are able to generate chronic stress. You know, we, we're turning it on, but we're not actually turning it off. And there's just simply no organism that evolved for chronic stress. Uh, there's really no upside to it. Um, and it not only does it affect performance in the short term, but it also dramatically affects health. In fact, anytime you see a link between stress and cardiovascular disease or uh, any of the other nasty diseases, cancer even, it tends to be chronic stress that's driving it, not acute stress. So I think that's the first thing, just to understand the difference between good and bad stress and chronic stress. And then the, the second thing to understand is how easy it is to fall into chronic stress today. And I think particularly if you're working in a high-pressure professional services environment. I want to just give a, a quick story, actually, here about um, how easy it is to fall into chronic stress. Um, I was working with a senior team at an airline at the beginning of the pandemic. So take yourself back to February, March 2020. Uh, the senior team at a major international airline, you can imagine what that was like. It was absolute chaos. Really, they were working round the clock, no boundaries, no constraints, just working flat out in emergency mode to try and save the business. And of course, that's exactly what they needed to do. But then if I fast forward to the end of last year, so the end of 2021, I remember one of the, I was with the same team, one of them stood up and said, we're still working in the same way. And yet it's nearly 18 months later. And it struck me that actually that probably resonates with a lot of people, that it's easy to fall into a routine when there's an emergency uh, that works for a while. It's needed for a while. But the problem that is that becomes the new normal, that becomes the default. And so if that resonates at all with people listening, what people actually need is a way of recognizing this chronic stress. I call it the flat line way of working. And then, of course, a framework to reset their routines uh, so that it doesn't become the default. That, that's fascinating. Yes, it does. It does resonate about how we fall into these, these ingrained habits and how that does quickly become the normal, the normal behavior. And I think we saw that 
throughout the pandemic in a, in a range of different scenarios. I think we did. And of course, what you had in the pandemic, particularly if you're working from home a lot, many of the boundaries also blurred between work and home. And what you had then was what I call the flat line way of working. So if I describe that briefly, it would be a day that's undifferentiated. There's no constraints. You basically wake up in the morning, you're immediately into reactive mode, you're checking your work emails, um, and then you work flat out until you sort of collapse into bed at night and then repeat. And we know that that was the pattern for many in the pandemic. But we also know that actually the pattern since the pandemic, you know, even in a hybrid pattern, many people resonate with this idea of the flat line and there's lots of symptoms. Uh, so if I give you a few, maybe that would be helpful. Waking up in the morning in a, in a reactive way, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with checking your emails first thing, but it's, it's not starting the day on the front foot. You're starting the day on with something you cannot control. And we also know that that can raise anxiety levels the night before, which make, makes sleep harder. People become a lot more sedentary on the flat line. So if, if you count your steps, as, as I do, you know, you'll know that as you get busier, it's easier to get pinned to your desk. And a good indicator of whether you're sedentary is walking less than 5,000 steps a day. Um, I think one of the ironies of the flat line is people find it harder to focus. So you might be really busy, but actually, ironically, you find it harder to focus. You're pulled between lots of priorities. You're not even really sure what the priorities really are. And maybe a couple more just to, to leave you with. Um, I think daylight, particularly in the winter. So you, you're getting up in the dark, you're going home in the dark. If you don't actually force yourself outside in the day, you're not actually ever seeing daylight. And humans just did not evolve to work in that way. It's just, it's not really a thing. And I think the key psychological thing behind the, the, the flat line is, is a tendency to feel guilt about taking breaks in the way that, say, an athlete would never feel guilty about taking a break. They see the break as enabling performance. I think many of us in professional services, we feel guilt, uh, like we haven't really got time for the break or uh, we're letting somebody down. It's a completely different mindset when it comes to breaks and recovery. I think, I think that's fascinating, Rob. And one of the things that, <clears throat> that I noticed from colleagues and others um, during the pandemic were the mixed um, responses to the lack of a commute. Because often when you ask people, you know, what they, they liked about working from home, it would be, oh, well, I don't have to commute. But at the same time, you ask them what they lacked from working at home. And sometimes the same people would say the commute. Exactly. There was this ambivalent uh, attitude towards it because it was exactly that pause. It was that buffer between work and non-work. That's exactly right. And I think those two things can be true at the same time. If you look at the, the uh, data on well-being, actually, the longer your commute, the worse your well-being. People do not get used to it. It's not a contributor to better well-being. And at the same time, it does tend to create a structure, a natural rhythm to your day. You're kind of preparing on the way in. You're also warming down on the way home. And there's a kind of boundary and constraint naturally there. Take away that. You might in the short term feel happier. You don't have to commute. Nobody really enjoys it. 
but that boundary and constraint is gone. And actually that was doing more for you than perhaps we realized. Okay, so, so Rob, when we, when we look at peak performance, what are the key things that high pressure business environments can learn from elite sports? Let's kind of unpick this cross-pollination a bit more. Well, I, I think there's probably a lot, but there's a few that really spring to mind. So I think the first one I probably mentioned is that link between recovery and performance. There's no athlete that I know of who doesn't see recovery as the driver of performance. So there's a very clear relationship in their mind. Athletes tend to see recovery as part of the job. It is now my job to recover in order to then perform at my best in the next match. Uh, so it's a real sense of entitlement and duty when it comes to recovery. Contrast that to many in professional services, it's the opposite. So I think that's the first thing, even though, you know, if you're an elite lawyer, your ability to do complex things, you know, solve complex problems on behalf of your clients also has a direct relationship to your own recovery. You know, mental performance is really no different to physical performance. So I think that would be the first thing that we can learn. We can learn a little bit of that athlete mentality in order uh, to recover. The second thing would be that the flat line therefore doesn't really exist. If you're an athlete, you have very clear routines. You know, really the recipe is you stress yourself and your body and then you recover and then you go again. And it's that that builds the resilience. So athletes don't have a flat line. They have a very clear, what I'm going to call a high performance routine. And maybe another quick story here would help. Um, I was supporting one of the um, Olympic weightlifting teams last year in, at the Olympics in Japan. And um, basically, I asked a very stupid question. You know, I asked one of the coaches, how on earth do you lift weights that heavy? Because honestly, the, the, the weights that they lift is just absolutely absurd. And basically, the coach said, um, you know, you have to break it down. You have to approach it in stages. So firstly, you have to prepare. You have to mentally prepare to lift the weight. You can't just rock onto stage and expect to lift that something that heavy. It's just not a thing. So you get into the zone. Then you have to really focus on the lift. So you have to be incredibly focused. Your mind has to be on the lift. You can't be distracted. Then after the lift, you warm down and recover. And then you go through the process again. And as long as you do that often enough, you're going to develop the strength over time to, to maybe lift a weight that heavy. So that's what works with weightlifting. Of course, most people listening to this are not lifting physically heavy weights, but they're certainly lifting mentally heavy weights, emotionally heavy weights all the time. And really, it's the same research shows those four stages also work for knowledge workers. We we've got to prepare. We've got to really focus on our work, then warm down, recover, and then go again. That's a much more effective routine than just the flat line. And then the third and final thing I think we can learn from sport is this concept of marginal gains. Now, the best way of describing marginal gains, you probably heard of the phrase, but imagine you're working with somebody like Serena Williams, somebody really at the top of their game. What you would never do is rock up to Serena and say, oh, I think you need to make these big changes. You know, it would be ridiculous. 
But what elite performers do stay open to is this idea that maybe you could make a 1% shift. Maybe there's something that you could do differently with your recovery or your preparation or your technique that's not a dramatic change, but will still accumulate over time and make a difference. Now, I think, you know, again, elite law firms, people at the top of professional services firms, it's a similar idea. They probably don't need to make big changes. If you're working at Linklaters, you probably, most of what you're doing is right. But at the same time, as an elite performer, you could probably benefit from marginal gains. So you are in the business of marginal gains. The only question is, where are you going to make them? I was thinking about the, the, the recovery, just going back to that recovery as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in a way, it's non-performance, but it's absolutely integral to performance itself. And whether in worlds outside of sport, we get guilty about that non-performance. And maybe it's a shift in the way we approach it and thinking it's not doing nothing, it's actually doing something that is really valuable. I think and, ha and how we get that, how we get that shift in mindset. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I, I really do. I think that's the core difference. Obviously, it's a lot more, a lot easier for athletes to recover. They have three matches a week. It's clear they have recovery days. That's not the case for an elite lawyer. But I think actually the biggest difference is the one you've mentioned. It's the mentality difference. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's no um, shortage of evidence to show that without recovery, mental performance gets worse almost immediately. And, and probably rather than attempting to convince people, just think about your own experience. You're working on something difficult, maybe at night, and you're really struggling to make progress. And then you decide to take a break, and you, uh, you sleep overnight, you come back to the same problem the next morning and you cut through it like a knife through butter. That's the immediate difference that recovery makes. And of course, the other thing we underestimate is that we often have our best ideas when we're away from our desk. Recovery actually is a very active process, as you suggest, and it's often the place where we have an idea or an insight. Uh, without recovery, we just feel overwhelmed. Yes, I, mean, I don't think I've ever had a good idea in the office. They all come outside. In the shower, usually. In, in the, or the shower or on a walk or on a train. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, my team have actually banned me from going on walks um, just because... Too the, many ideas. Too many, too many ideas, <laughs> exactly that, yeah. They, they confiscate my pass. Um, <laughs> now, you alluded to those high-performance routines and you identify... I think you've identified four phases mm. when I was, I was reading um, your materials. Um, could you take us through those? Yeah. So, preparation is the stage at which you are really trying to do two things, mentally preparing to perform. So this was what the commute used to be really good for. You could use your commute as a way of mentally preparing for the day. You might map out what the day is gonna be like. And there's a lot of evidence that mental preparation, mental rehearsal improves performance. So that's the first job. And then the second is to narrow your focus. And I think this is particularly important for knowledge workers. We have so much to do. We probably all have you know, twice as much as we could possibly do it every day. So the real purpose of, of preparation is to narrow your focus and force yourself to identify the things that really do need, move the needle. 
So what are the things that are more important today than others? And being ruthless about identifying what those things are. Now, of course, plans will change. That's normal. But we know that the, just the process of preparation improves overall business success by between 10 and 20% because it does so many helpful things. It, it sort of surfaces assumption, flushes out risks. It's a really helpful place to start. So preparation is the first piece. Preparation then allows you to do the second stage, which is about focusing. So this is really where you are very focused. You're working on a high priority and you're not distracted. And I think actually this is where many of us fall down. Many of us are switching our attention all the time. We're overly available. Um, and of course we have to be, but this is about saying, do you have any part of your day where you're not distracted, you're working with full focus on something that really matters. And we know that people who do that, they, they produce better outcomes. So that's the sort of active performance. Those are the first two stages about performance. And then we have warm down. So warm down is really about setting boundaries, setting cutoffs. And if you can, closing any open loops. This is again really important for knowledge workers. The idea of a warm down is to kind of transition away from the focus stage to tee up recovery and lower anxiety. It's difficult to just flick a switch and, and turn, you know, turn all of the th thoughts off. Most people need a warm down. And then the fourth stage is recovery. And as, as we've discussed, you know, it's about regaining energy, but it's also about gaining a better perspective on your challenges, on your worries, uh, and, and generating insights. So put together those four stages suggest you, you're better off doing certain behaviors at certain times of the day and then repeating. You're going to be a lot healthier, a lot happier, and higher performing. Okay, so what can we sort of do individually to design our own high performance routines? So I think one of the things I like to do is, is to get people to think about what's already working well. I, I, I said, you know, you're probably an elite performer. You're probably doing a lot of things right. Um, and so, therefore, what are those things? You know, what are you doing already that, that is really giving health, happiness, and high performance? So start with some positives and then think about identifying which of those four stages do you just intuitively feel like you're not doing enough in? Or could you just make a tweak to optimize using a marginal gain? Um, and there's lots of different ways of doing this, but the good news is um, there's an assessment that we can offer after. It's a free assessment uh, that we can offer after uh, this session, this podcast, where people can actually do a short quiz and they'll get a, a report, confidential, free and confidential, which will tell them where they're going well and where they might want to improve. So that would be one idea of something practical people could do after this, uh, after this podcast. I don't really want to put a downer on this, but you know, it, all, it all sounds great, but 
What happens when we hit a really busy, intense period? Which is going to happen? Some people might say it's busy, intense all the time, but it could be a sudden deadline, a project or a, a deal close. We all know what it's like. Those good intentions just disappear out of the window. What would be your advice there? Well, I think the, 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 the advice is that that's going to happen. That is now modern life. All we're trying to prevent is that's what I'm going to call emergency mode preventing that from becoming default mode. Because, you know, if everything's an emergency, nothing's an emergency. So therefore, I think it's about recognizing in ourselves or as if we're leaders, you know, in our teams, recognizing when emergency mode is. And you can even say, you know, we're in it now. And, 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 and a lot of these boundaries and constraints will disappear. Hopefully not all of them. Uh, but many of them will disappear. But it's important to then be able to reset and recalibrate and say, right, now we've, we've moved through that. We're now in our default mode. And I would expect to see many of those four stages come back. It's really important to distinguish the two. Because unless you do that, particularly as a leader, when you come to press that accelerator back for emergency mode, there'll be nothing left to give. And yes, you'll be dealing with burnout, but also there's a lot of costs that businesses pay before burnout in terms of lost productivity and lost performance. So I think that would be the key thing, distinguish between the two modes. One thing I'm curious about, you've spoken about how the organizational world can learn from elite sport, but does that work the other way? Can sport learn from how elite businesses perform? Yeah, I, I think that this is a really thought-provoking question because I think usually it does go the other way. Partly, I think, because sport has a clear outcome. There's a win or a loss. It enable sporting teams to identify the factors behind human performance a lot more clearly than say a knowledge work organization. It's actually a lot harder to know whether a knowledge worker is really performing well than it is for an athlete. So I think for those reasons, usually businesses are learning from sport. But actually when I reflected on it, particularly in the last uh, probably 20 or so years, your question did make me think, actually, many sporting organizations have, have professionalized greatly. And many of the sort of business practices uh, that we are all used to now have become, you know, much more part of everyday life for sporting organizations. And this is really across the piece, I think. Um, but maybe particularly in terms of the use of data and anal analytics, uh, and again, Sports is really, this is really a cutting edge area in sport now. Um, the professionalization of recruitment, I'd say, you know, it's no longer, I think, so much of the old boys network. I think there's a, a lot more um, professionalization in, in that area. Um, and I think many of the sort of practices around, for example, HR or whatever it might be, um, we're also seeing that in elite sport as well. So your question was a really a thought-provoking one. I do think it's going both ways now. It's not a one-way street. No. Now, of course, we are at the start of a, a new year and many of us will have made our 
our resolutions, maybe even broken them already. But is there a way to connect this to yeah, sort of improving our high performance routines? I think so, yes. I, and I think one of the reasons I like the idea of routines above, for example, habits, like we all, you know, we all have this sort of idea that we're going to change our habits or a new year resolution. Habits and new year resolutions tend to be quite standalone. You know, I'm going to go and do more yoga this year or whatever it might be. Nothing wrong with this at all. But the problem with habits and resolutions is that because they're standalone, they often present as an extra thing that I have to go off and do. So now, along with my very busy day, I now have to try and squeeze in my yoga class that I've committed to as part of my resolution. And of course, that's really hard. So I think it's actually often more helpful to think in terms of routines and rhythms, that there are certain times of the day where I'm better off to do certain behaviors. And if I can do those behaviors, it makes the next part of the routine more effective. So for example, if I'm preparing effectively, if I'm mentally preparing and identifying my priorities ruthlessly, I'm much more focused than I would be without that. And if I'm more focused, I tend to be more effective. And that means I can set a cutoff time because I'm being more intense. And the cutoff means I can then go and recover, which gives me my energy back to do the cycle again. So I think thinking about this rhythm and which aspects of that rhythm do you want to tweak is actually going to be a lot more powerful than just thinking about isolated habits. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do like that um, because it is, it is intriguing, isn't it, that we, that we, we create these pressures on ourselves yeah. to reduce pressure uh, and it has exactly the opposite effect. Well, one of the nice findings about um, decision-making under pressure is apparently when we're feeling stressed, we have a natural bias to do something about it. Makes sense, doesn't it? That you do something about the stress. But the blind spot is that almost nobody says to themselves, what could I subtract? What could I take away? So we're so focused on the thing that we can add, we miss the thing that we could detract, subtract, sorry. And so, um, if you extrapolate that out, you know, you're going to have lots of very already very busy, stressed people just adding and adding and adding. And of course, eventually that's just not going to work. So I, I, I like that idea that occasionally it's about subtracting. So we're, we're almost at the end, Rob. But of course, I have to ask inevitably, um, do you make New Year's resolutions? And uh, if you do, would you be happy to share what you've committed to this year? Well, I don't. Yoga, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> uh, funny enough, I, I am hoping to do more <laughs> yoga this year uh, because I'm increasingly feeling my sort of aging bones. But um, I, I, I find New Year resolutions now, the idea a little bit outdated, but I don't want to put everybody off. So what, what I will say is that I am indeed committing to tweaking a part of my high performance routine Last year was particularly busy for us. We, we seem to be busy every year, but um, th this concept of high performance routines really did resonate almost everywhere. And so I was incredibly busy. And 
I had to make recovery more of an issue, more of a, a, a sort of commitment than I had before. So last year, very much towards the end of last year, I was really had to think about recovery and making that more of a commitment. This year, uh, my new year resolution is to think about the focus stage, which I think is really underestimated, that we're so distracted, many of us, constantly, and it doesn't really help us get stuff done, and it certainly doesn't help us recover. I'm gonna really focus on focus, and thinking about ways that I can create a context in which I'm more focused more often. So that would probably qualify as my uh, New Year resolution. Well, Rob, we're going to have you back in 2024 and we're going to see how that focus on focus uh, went. <laughs> well, I love how you're keeping me accountable there. And um, can I turn a question back to you? What would be your, uh, where are you thinking? If, if you were to develop one of those four stages, preparation, focus, warm down or recovery, intuitively, where would you focus? Do you know, it would be recovery because it's something I'm very bad at um, and I do just tend to pile it on. And that is the thing that, and I can, I can comfort myself because I can say I'm doing, you know, what every sports performer does. Um, I'm following in their, in their lead. So for me, it would be the, it would be the recovery. So look, we've uh, looks like we've uh, we, we've got a mutual uh, sort of date to catch up. In 2024, you're going to tell me about focus. Count me in. I'm going to tell you about recovery. But in the meantime, Rob, thanks so much for coming along uh, this afternoon. Thanks for inviting me.